0: Well, it's good for us to be getting back into this series. Um, 24 hours. uh, It seems maybe for some of us a bit strange to still be talking about... Uh, the crucifixion, perhaps, as we've been working up to Easter. Inevitably, we're working up to the, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, of course. We, we know that. We can see that. Uh, and so to still be talking about the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus might seem a little strange uh, if you haven't been able to be here at the beginning of the uh, series. So just a quick reminder, what we've said is that um, the cross is so central uh, to the message of Jesus... So essential. In fact, it continues to come up right the way through all of the subsequent letters. It's so important. It's so absolutely essential as a concept. It's the very focus of the whole of the Bible. That it doesn't matter that we keep coming back to it. In fact, we must keep coming back to it. The idea that we've got through Easter and still looking at the last day of Jesus' life is not a problem, because the rest of the Bible continues to uh, look back to that event, and as we begin to get to know the Bible, we realize that all of the previous part of the Bible, the Old Testament, is looking forward to that event. In fact, when we come to the life of Jesus himself, we realize that Jesus' life, those those moments, well, three years uh, of ministry, thirty year, thirty three years of life, uh, we realise that actually Jesus' life in ministry. Uh, The things that he said, the journeys that he took, the events that took place, even those were building towards that very event. One of the phrases that he uses uh, again and again, particularly we see it in the letter of John, the gospel of John, is he uses the phrase, my hour has not yet come or my hour has come. He talks about my hour in terms of a, a really critical moment in his life. And he's talking about his death. There's not many of us, unless we're particularly morbid people, um, talk continuously throughout our lives about our death. That would be a a strange thing. It would be something that we would want to, to talk to somebody about and to maybe get some help about if we were totally preoccupied about our death. And yet Jesus was. He was preoccupied with his death. Not because he was morbid. But because like the rest of the Bible, his death was absolutely essential in the message of his presence. And so for us to continue to work through this, um, I think is a great thing. We've got another few weeks looking at it, um, which we're going to see how that might break up in a couple of minutes. Uh, And also, when, when you read the various accounts, maybe what we realize is that it is impossible for us to deal with all of the different aspects of the last 24 hours in a series like this. It's just impossible if we're not going to take maybe two years to work through the series which we could we could literally take a few years and look at all of the implications all of the incredibly important aspects of that last 24 hours why is that because it's almost as though um, everything draws together to this moment some of you might have heard recently the death of an artist um, who designed the cover of the Pink Floyd album and a whole load of other uh, iconic uh, rock albums of the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. Um, The cover of the Pink Floyd album has a picture of a prism and a light uh, and the light shines in one side and and out comes the spectrum of light on the other side. Uh, Imagine it working the other way Imagine all of the different ideas, all the different ideas of the Bible, all of the different thoughts. The, the spectrum out of this side converges and comes together in one moment at the cross. Everything finds its sense of order and purpose at the cross. That's why it's something that we need to look at. So we're going to be dealing with... Um, In fact, we're going to break it up over these next few weeks. The third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. Because they're fairly uh, important aspects to the way the various Bible writers look at the time of the cross. The question that we're going to ask this afternoon, and we'll see why it fits in. What happens when our sins are unknown? What happens when our sins are unknown? Really important, that. I I haven't seen the film, I've only seen the trailer, and the trailer has absolutely grabbed me. It's a movie that's out this year, it's called Side Effects, starring Jude Law. Jude Law is playing the part uh, of a psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Banks, and it seems to me, just by the trailer, so I can't actually spoil the film for you uh, this afternoon, which makes a change. Dr. Jonathan Banks has this young woman in his care, and it seems from by the way of the trailer he 's kind of quite a, an enthusiastic um, quite, quite ambitious uh, psychiatrist and he wants to be at the forefront of his whole field he's kind of he wants to be seen to be there and he takes the decision to prescribe a new medication, and the story goes or the Uh, The trailer goes, a young woman's world unravels when a drug prescribed by her psychiatrist has unexpected and devastating side effects. That's just fantastic, isn't it? What about when our actions, when our actions which at a particular moment in time appear on the surface to be benign... But the implications of the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we say, have profound effects. What happens then? And then what happens when we start to soul search and we realize that those what appear to be benign decisions are actually maybe not quite that benign? (laughs) Isn't that so often the case? when we realize that those decisions are laced with all sorts of maybe self-promotion or self-commitment, what happens when our decisions unravel and there are all sorts of side effects to the decisions that we make and we realize that we have profoundly uh, and in a real way which is not just affecting those around us, but we realize it's another situation where we can see so clearly that our hearts and our lives are lives of rebellion against God, what the Bible describes as sin. It's a picture that I've used on a number of occasions, uh, the idea of being involved in, in the death, of of jews during the second world war a picture that i saw in a history book just a normal ordinary soldier involved in that but caught up in a whole structure in a whole system which caused the decisions that he made and the actions that he took to have profound and rebellious against god implications for those around and for himself what happens when that is the case, well, I think our text this afternoon has got something to say for us in this, just to put it into context uh, luke chapter twenty three this is the third hour that 's between eight and nine o 'clock in the morning, and we see that the soldiers lead jesus away, so through the night he 's been tried he 's been um, he 's been flogged and he 's now gone through he 's gone through a number of Legal processes, as we saw the other week, many of which were not fully legal, were not following by the letter of the Jewish law, uh, we find that Jesus has now been found guilty uh, and has be, he, they go beyond what would be normal. Uh, they flog him and crucify him. That would not have been the normal course of events. Normally you would have been found guilty. You would have been crucified. You would not have gone through the two punishments. It's a bit like like, um, finding somebody and then putting them in jail. uh, Only on a scale of beyond, beyond our understanding. It's two punishments there that Jesus had dealt out to him. We find that Jesus, um, the other gospels, give a very clear account of how devastating was the treatment of Jesus. And we realize that uh, although most would be expected, or part of crucifixion was that you would carry your cross to the point where you would be crucified we realize that Jesus isn't able to do this we see the soldiers led him away they seized Simon from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus so here's this situation Jesus isn't able to dig his own grave in metaphoric terms he isn't able to dig his own grave. He's gone beyond the point of physical ability to carry his own cross. And Simon, is the demand is made that he carries the cross of Jesus. We see a number of incidents. He's unable to do that. Uh, it's part of that is this interesting character, Simon. Simon is, that's all we know, actually. The speculation about what happened with Simon, but the Bible literally tells us the name of Simon of Cyrene. That's it. That's all we know. He doesn't, as far as we can see, appear anybody anywhere else. There's suggestions that one of his sons might appear later on. But there is no clear evidence that that's the case. And yet he's named. Maybe, maybe, because Luke, who is uh, an accurate recorder, he's writing for a man by the name of Theophilus, Maybe Simon is a well known character in the church at the point where Theophilus is reading this, or maybe he's a well known character from the past and Theophilus reads this and says, Oh, right, okay. That is pure speculation. We don't know. But there's been all sorts of speculation around Simon. Just maybe this is important. Some of you might be struggling with the idea of what's called the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic, Gnostic Gospels were a series of writings found at Nag Hammad, uh, which are giving, if you like, alternative, later ideas of the Gospels. In one of the Gnostic Gospels, the Second Treatise of the Great Seth is the name of it, the suggestion is made that actually Simon uh, is the one who ends up being crucified, (laughs) Uh, and Jesus isn't crucified. Uh, That's the suggestion in not a suggestion, it's clearly, clearly stated in the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels for many people and, and maybe for even for some Christians have become a major stumbling block. What's going on here when we read these later records that are certainly ancient but written probably around about f- between 300 and 550 AD, much later on? What's going on is, was Jesus therefore not killed? Uh, was Simon the one who was crucified instead of Jesus? I just want to just momentarily touch on that because it's important. Because it can be a real problem for some of us. Firstly, if you read any of the um, Gnostic Gospels, they are fascinating, fascinating, but bonkers, <laughs> So maybe that's not a technical term. (laughs) They're really interesting, but if you read them, it's like some sort of wild, mystical, kind of strange set of words uh, filled with mysticism. I say that because they are in stark contrast to the clarity of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you read the four Gospels, you see a clarity in the way that they are written. They are written as historical accounts. They are written with order. The Gnostic Gospels are written with all sorts of weird kind. It almost feels like you're reading something from Lord of the Rings. Not written as part of the story, but something that would be read out by one of the wizards in Lord of the Rings. They're really strange. Now, one of the important aspects of our trust in the Bible is that the Bible, in and of itself, brings an authority to us. In in other words, when we we read it, we realize that it carries a level of self-authority. Now, you compare that to the Gnostic Gospels, and you will see, actually, I can have a a lot more confidence, not by running away from them and being fearful of them, but actually by reading them and saying, let me compare the two. Which one do I feel most confident in? Secondly, let me just suggest this. If, if, if that was the suggestion that Jesus actually got away and Simon was crucified, what we are being asked to believe is that somebody who has been flogged beyond recognition is accidentally swapped at the point of crucifixion with somebody who happened to be walking away from walking through the city at that point in time the contrast between the two people couldn't be greater one was beyond recognition covered in blood, battered, bruised, hardly able to walk, dragging himself up Calvary's mountain, unable to carry the cross himself. The other one is dressed normally and unmarked. Now, I guess, I would guess that if Simon end up stretched out on the cross, he would have a pretty good claim to say, you've got the wrong guy. (laughs) Don't you think? You've got the wrong guy. Just look at me. I've got my travel bag right next to me. Look at him. He's the one. In other words, the account of the great Seth, the suggestion of the great Seth, does not bare historical record it's interesting it's kind of wacky and weird and it's important that we don't run away from things like that but we get into it and we understand can I believe that I want to encourage you that um, all of the Gnostic Gospels follow the same kind of pattern same kind of weird speculative ideas don't be frightened of them just keep sticking Just keep digging into and seeing the clarity and the authority that the Bible brings. But what we actually see is that as Jesus is walking along, there are a number of conversations that go on. He talks to this group of women who are weeping because of their children. And he has a conversation with them. Later on, there is this conversation that goes on with the criminals uh, who are one decries him. Uh, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place of the the skull, uh, they crucified him there with one on each side. The people stood and watched a bit later on. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. He saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked and there's various other things that are going on at this point. We can't cover all of it. I want to cover just one specific incident, which is found in verse 33. They came to the place called the skull. They crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And here's the key. This is what I want to focus on this afternoon. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They do not know what they are doing. That seemed to me as I read that, that just struck home with what I said right at the beginning. What happens when the things that we do at that moment in time do not carry the significance that we realize? Jesus is making a statement here, isn't he? Let's think about that. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. I want to just cover three things. Who is he talking about? Why is it important? And what does it mean to me and to you? Who is he talking about? That's the first thing. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what... The, who's the them and who's the they? Who is it that he's actually directing that comment to? Oh, not the previous criminals, because actually they're not doing it. <laughs> they're not carrying out the crucifixion. They're nailed alongside him. In the previous verse, it's talking about the criminals. Second, it goes on, and uh, it says, following on from that, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The Greek there is a little bit different. It says, then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. In other words, Luke is is creating a series of uh, comments here. Um, This is what happened. He's crucified. He says this, and this happened. They cast lots for his garments. So who is he talking about? If we've had any opportunity right the way through this Uh, series what we've been able to see is this that there is a continuous drive in all of the gospels to help us to understand that not one particular individual not one particular group not one particular nation not one particular legal jurisdiction are individually responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. What we actually see, what the Gospel writers help us to see, is that it was the Jews and it was the Romans, and it was the Jewish court and it was the Roman court, and it was Judas who was responsible, and it was the disciples who didn't stand beside him who were responsible, and it was the people who were responsible. And it was the Roman soldiers who were responsible. And it was this group and it was that group. And it was this mass who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Why? Why do the gospel accounts continually tell us and remind us that that is the case? Why is it that it doesn't drill down and say they did the deed? Why does it always make it bigger? What we're going to see is because the reason they do that is because of this. Because the them and the they is far, far more than just the people who happen to be there. In other words, all of those different groups that the different gospel accounts indicate to us a part of the process, they are, if you like, they are representative. They become representations of a much wider community. In fact, the gospel writer, in fact, the the later writers go on and they they take that idea and they move it even further. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, he writes this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement by the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In other words, he's saying, as you see the crucifixion, that sacrifice that Jesus becomes, it becomes... Relevant to all of those who receive it by faith. That means way beyond. Way beyond those who happen to be there at the time. And atonement means forgiveness for guilt. So, way beyond the number is the first thing that I want want to suggest. Secondly, I want to suggest the reason is because there is a greater significance... One of, the, one of the ideas that is, has been threatened in recent years is the idea that the cross is not what the church has historically understood it to be. Paul says very clearly there in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, Jesus is a sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice. God sacrificed him. And And for... Many thinkers, emerging at the moment, that idea is absolutely abhorrent. It's dreadful. It's awful. The idea that Jesus is an atoning sacrifice. That that word atoning is an interesting one. It's got a lot of depth to it. But just for now, if we think about it in in this, this way, atonement means at one in simple terms. It's a, it's a way for me, once again, to be at one with God. In other words, by presenting this in this way, Paul is saying, the sacrifice is an atoning sacrifice remember I said earlier that all of the ideas kind of merge? Where's, where's Paul getting this from? Way back, right the way through the Old Testament, we continuously see this, the idea that sacrifice is a way of atoning. Listen to what it says right at the very beginning. Le- Leviticus. Um, I know somebody who's got through a Leviticus <laughs> by reading it. In their Bible reading, the beginning of the year, they've started reading through the Bible. Most people give up at Leviticus. I'm really impressed they've got beyond Leviticus. Because Leviticus is kind of so complex and strange and hard to read. But listen to what it says. Right at the very beginning of Leviticus, it says this. You th- God has been talking about um, sacrifice in the first few verses. Chapter 1 verse 4 says this. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted On your behalf to make atonement for you. To make atonement for you. In other words, the sacrifice that you are to bring to the priest makes you one with God, it makes you at one with God. There's a real kind of clear picture there that the priest places his hand on behalf of the individuals who have brought the sacrifice. The priest, priest places his hand on the sacrifice as if to say, that is my connection with the sacrifice so that as that sacrifice is made, those who are connected to that sacrifice Are made one with God. Why do I need to be made one with God? Why do I need to be made one with God? The idea of the Bible is because I'm not one with God. Isn't it great when you've got that kind of... Oneness with a friend or a, or a lover or somebody, you know, whoever it is, your, your partner in life, the, the person that you've married, that, that connection, which just one or your, your absolute best friend, that person who you are close with. You might not experience this. The great message of the Bible is that Jesus can be that very person for you. You are one with that person. It's a way of expressing it, isn't it? It's a relationship there. And the Bible says, I am not in that relationship with God. And the reason that I'm not in relationship with God like that is because I have rebelled against Him. I've separated myself from Him. And I need to be at one with God. Now, here's the thing. The greater significance is, and the reason that the idea that converges at this moment in the cross is this. This. In the Old Testament, the priest says, Right, I will lay my hand on your behalf on that sacrifice, and that will make you one with God. That's great news. In other words, the priest is kind of saying this, metaphorically speaking, the priest is saying this Father, forgive them. Yeah, that? that's what that connection does. As the priest places his hand on the sacrifice, as the sacrifice is made, the priest says, Father, metaphorically speaking, Father, forgive them. Because when I'm forgiven, I'm at one again. When I'm forgiven, I'm, one with, I'm at one in relationship with God again. What happens when the priest... Is the sacrifice. What happens when the priest is the sacrifice? I'll tell you what happens. The priest says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. The priest As the priest becomes the sacrifice, the priest stretches out his hands and he says, Father, forgive them. They do not understand the significance of what is going on here. They do not understand that they are now making that moment of disconnection yet creating the opportunity for connection. Father, forgive them. That the remarkable thing is this a loving father sees his son crucified unjustly in this world, and this massive mystery takes place. God gives him as a sacrifice. And at the same time, he abhors and hates every individual who's caused his son to be nailed to the cross. And, the, and Jesus, as the priest, says, Father, forgive them. Isn't that amazing? That I can't even begin to disentangle those two ideas i can't understand even begin to understand how the father can give the sacrifice and yet the sacrifice actually becomes the the very reason why the father finds guilt in those who are responsible for the death of the son and yet jesus says father forgive them the priest at the altar becomes the sacrifice on the altar and pleads forgiveness. How do we see this worked out? We're going to close with this. What are the implications for me? Side effects. What happens when I realize I am way more guilty than I thought back there? That's basically the heart of it, isn't it? What happens when I realize that my motives, although I thought they were just and fine and right, when I realize that as it unravels, they are way more? What happens when you realize and when I realize that the good that I thought I did back then was not driven by some benign philanthropic goodness for the world around but rather that it was driven from my own self of centered pride to say look what I have done that's even at the best of things what about when the worst of things we realize it unravels and we see the, the the grotesque reality of our pride that drives that behavior we can see this worked out matter of weeks later actually we can see this worked out because there's a moment where this idea converges again it's called pentecost and at pentecost having jesus having risen from the dead returned to heaven ascended there is a remarkable outpouring of god's blessing Peter stands up and he dresses the people. And he says this. Okay, you saw him crucified. But God has raised Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And has poured out what you now see and hear. Do you see that? He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son are once again beautifully united in that beautiful relationship with the Holy Spirit and on receiving it, He pours it out. And that's what you are seeing now, Peter is saying. For David did not descend to heaven and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We we won't cover that at the moment, but look at the next little bit. Therefore, let all Israel be, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And there's that moment for those some of those hearers. When they hear that, they realize the implications of back there. Not every one of these hearers picked up the nails and drove the nails through the hands of Jesus. Not every one of these hearers were in the court. Not every one of these hearers were in the population of people who shouted crucify him, but they know that they are, in a sense, responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus in human terms. That's what Peter says. He says, you've crucified Him. You've crucified Him. Now, that is the mystery. It says, Paul says it was God who saw Him as a sacrifice and Peter says, you've crucified Him. In other words... The blood of Jesus is on your heads. The dawning realization that the crucified Jesus is my responsibility. Because I am one with all of those people groups and all of those different connections and all of those expressions of the world and guilt. That says, I am part of the people, timelessly, that crucified Jesus. It's my guilt, it's your guilt that crucified Jesus. How does it carry on? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is amazing news. It's amazing news because it means that I can do one of two things. I can see my guilt. I can be part of the people that are guilty. I can be part of that accountability. But I can come to the priest and say, lay your hand on the head of that sacrifice and allow that priest to say, Father, forgive them. And if I do that, if I say, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? You'll say, I will forgive you. And even more than that, I will pour out on you the same relationship that I have with my Father. I will pour out on you. I will allow, if you like, the, the conduit of beautiful relationship to wind you in as well, to draw you in. I will allow the glue that bonds my love and the Father together to be the same glue that bonds you to me. Why? Because Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Because Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Because when the priest was nailed to the cross, his thought was for those who were to be forgiven that's remarkable when the side effects that we suddenly realize are way more profound, the priest has always said, already said, "Father, forgive them." When we realize the guilt, when we are cut to the heart, as these individuals were cut to the heart, the priest has already said, "Father, forgive them." When you or I would have been in that situation situation our thoughts would have been for me. But when Jesus was in that situation, his thoughts were for those who he would say, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. In other words, you and me, we don't even begin to understand the guilt. Our condition of guilt. Our offensive guilt before God that nailed Jesus to the tree but when we gain a little bit of understanding the great news, he said, Father, forgive them because the priest was the sacrifice. It's great news. It's great news to be able to come and to say, Lord Jesus, will you be my spokesman before God And will you say, Father, forgive on my behalf? And will you say, I will pour out my Holy Spirit on you?